Hello, this is Stuart Hayes from Careers Unplugged. Now, those of you that are regular listeners to the show will realize that our normal episode length is between 30 and 35 minutes. You'll also probably have some sense of the fact that we need to chop a little bit out occasionally to get episodes down to this duration, but today we've decided to not do that. This interview is so fantastic with such a wonderful guest that we decided to put it out there at the duration that it was recorded so you get to listen to the whole thing. So I'm just giving you this heads up now before we start so you know it's going to be a little bit longer than normal, but you know what? I think you're going to love it. If you've ever wanted to meet the person behind the person, to hear the story behind the story, or just want to learn what makes successful people tick, how they navigate through the tough times, and how you can apply what they do to help in your journey, then stick around and join Global Change CEO turned mentor, Stu Hayes, as he asks questions just like these to our amazing guests each week on Careers Unplugged. If you feel being happy, committed, and passionate about your career is important, then you are absolutely in the right place. My name is Stuart Hayes, and welcome to Careers Unplugged. Recently on the show, we've talked to a whole bunch of guests who have been at various stages of their careers in and around leadership and professional sport. And today, it is my great privilege to be sharing some time with a person whose contribution to Australia in the areas of sport, leadership, and education has been so significant It has led him to being awarded both an Australian Sports Medal and a Medal of the Order of Australia, along with having an annual oration for sport and social change bear his name. He's a former AFL Premiership captain, a best and fairest player, a four-time AFL Premiership coach, highly regarded media commentator. He's a lecturer, academic, author, specialising in coaching, sports psychology, self-improvement and related topics. The list goes on, David. David Parkin, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Careers Unplugged. Thanks, Stuart. So we've been talking uh, a little bit, um, and I wished I'd had the recording button pressed, to be honest, uh, about a whole bunch of things just before we, we led the episode in. Um, you're, you've retired from coaching. You, you're still incredibly active. Um, talk, talk about the journey. Let's start at the, at the current end of, of your career. So what are you up to these days? Well, um, I still have the privilege of, um, I think it, the, the long story is if you choose your parents well, get a, get a good education, Stuart, and remain reasonably healthy, um, and I got the trifecta, I think, <laughs> um, it's, it's left me with, a, with a, a changing landscape, I suppose, for my involvements as you get, as you get a bit older. I still um, am an adjunct professor at Deakin and uh, whilst I'm not teaching courses anymore, I still teach classes. I love that interaction or engagement with young people. That's, I guess, my whole life, whether it's been in the sporting or in the education field, has been trying to help young people optimise their, particularly their individual and often their collective talent. And to me, that's been the most satisfying thing that teachers forget mm. that they can make a, an infinite uh, effect if they like goes on from one generation yeah, I know you had a father who's a teacher too and mm. we forget sometimes that we teach people who teach people who teach people and that the I guess the philosophies that they might adopt as a end result of being with us are then handed on through generations and I like to think that that is so um, I've never thought about retiring from I that. retired to from teaching generally. Well, teaching, yeah. Life is. I've got grandchildren now. My great joy is working with them, trying to discover and nurture the talents that they have, because they are, I guess, the assets that will allow mm. them to control their life and make an impact on people, and, and finally on the uh, communities <laughs> in which they live. I mean, how much? How much a part of that is actually giving people the confidence to? Pursue what they love, their passions. So that's not re- that's really talked about in that regard. In the finish, your ability to convince people that they have the capacity to do things is absolutely crucial. Coaching and teaching and parenting is all about giving people the confidence that often they don't have mm. to do the things which they are capable of doing. And the great element within this is you because you are supposed to know 
they think I can. I'm not sure if I can, but they actually think I can. So on the basis that they should know that I can, I actually get to do the things that maybe I had the potential to but didn't really have the confidence to. Well, I know in my own journey that, you know, I started off, uh, I guess I, I followed a path um, that where I did things that I could do and did them well. Um, but actually, I, I, when, I, when I really felt, I guess, in my heart, what did I love, I didn't uh, really perceive that as being a career choice until I turned 40 and, and had a look in the mirror and, and made some, in some changes. Um, gee, and I, and, I, and I challenge that to people these days. Um, it sounds like you worked that out a lot, a lot earlier than well, I did. Well, Stuart, I, I say to people, I've, I've, I've never had to work in my whole life. I've never worked at anything. Mm. I have loved and had a passion for doing things. And I, I've had the good fortune that people have acknowledged that and actually underwritten it by paying me. But I've never, I've never had to do a day's work if we talk about work as something that we've, a chore that we've got to, you know, stick at and work at and persist at it. And I think persistence is a great quality, don't get me wrong. Mm. But I've never thought of what I've done and I've had a parallel life and I've had been fortunate enough to have, Leaders in my field, both in education and in sport, who thought that Blake Parkin will be far better off if we let him balance his life. We actually uh, had the pleasure of um, spending a bit of time, as I mentioned in the introduction, with a whole bunch of, of sports people that have been, uh, you know, some in their, their professional sporting careers right now, others that are that are well past, um, and some in one, in fact, one recent um, uh, person we interviewed. Daniel Jackson, who was right at the point of, of retiring from sport. I know um, Dan well. You do. And, and he's fact, one of my favourite people. From here, actually. Oh, that's right. He lives around yeah. the corner and has, has a, at a very young age, well, very young in comparison to me, he's 40 years younger than me, has um, a, an attitude to, to life and a balance and a, an interest in others mm. and uh, has been a great role model within that club. And within our game and through the AFL Players Association, done a brilliant job. He has, um, and a real commitment to youth, actually, as well. Yeah. You know, if you look at the the um, the different charities and and causes that he's associated himself with um, by choice, all the way through his career as a footballer, um, a real theme of of some of the things that you talked about earlier, actually, about uh, helping younger people make better choices. And uh, you know, one of the guys we interviewed recently. Um, was uh, Paul Ruse, and he made a, a remarkable comment. Um, we, we ran a, um, a Careers Unplugged live event at Melbourne Victory for the players so they could start to think about life after football. Um, and we interviewed George Columbaris, Paul Ruse, Craig Moore and uh, Ian McLeod from Coles. And Paul said something which shocked the, uh, the player group and, in fact, I think it shocked Kevin Musket and, and certainly me. What he said was that in his AFL list at Melbourne, he said, I know that there are at least four or five people who don't want to play AFL football um, that are in there, you know. And, and he said to Kevin, gee, I'm pretty sure that the same would be the case at Melbourne Victory. And, you know, of course, everyone was looking at Kevin. But what I, the reason I raise that is that just before we jumped on this conversation, you talked about um, asking your players when you were a coach, what are they doing and why are they doing it? And, and sort of fostering that as a concept that the playing group would ask each other. Did you sort of have that observation, I guess is my first curious question, that there were players within the team that, or within your teams that didn't want to be there? That no, I wouldn't have. And I've coached Paul Roos too. Yes. <laughs> um, had a long time with him and, and his work he did initially at Sydney in creating the, uh, the culture and environment. Um, no, I found the intrinsic drive because this is in fact something which they've been acknowledged or acknowledged within themselves, but it acknowledged in the community they work that they are good at. Very few people mm. don't want to be doing the things they're good at because of the reciprocal sort of um, feeling that is transmitted. It's a back. spiral of success. I mean, oh, you know, a absolutely. I, fi I, find, I, I find that from Paul quite remarkable, and he would have good grounds for saying he's a very mm. smart bloke, so I'm not contradicting, but I find no. that very, very strange. I interviewed every player every six months of their life. They had to come and sit with me one-on-one -on -one away from the footy club and talk about why they were here, mm. why were they actually playing footy with, with me, this particular club at this time, uh, what did they want to achieve through that playing yeah. and uh, how are they going to achieve it. That was part basic. And we did it with their uh, football and at the same time that conversation had their NFE, their non-football engagement. And in fact, 
no one would believe this, but I didn't play them. One of the re- reasons you got in the side was actually you were playing well and deserved to be there, but you're also doing something else with your life. So you were working, mm. you were studying, you were doing an apprenticeship, you were working in one of our two community programs, which gave the opportunity to do, or if you were Shane Crawford, you were doing song and dance, but you needed to be doing something. And if you weren't doing something which was non-football engagement, mm. I wouldn't play you. So wow. that became that became a powerful influence, and I, I wasn't a great footy coach. I know I wasn't. I was, you know, organised and all that sort of thing, but I wasn't a great, not terribly creative. But I meet my players, the Premiership players, every five years. I take them away, and four or five or half a dozen get up and talk about their story from that point of winning the Premiership to now, and it's amazing, absolutely amazes me that the number of those, and I reckon it'll be eighty or ninety percent. I'm not ever taken and I should have mm. done a little yeah. research study but 90, 80 or 90% of those maybe not so 75% of those are now working in the domains which they were exposed to and encouraged to even demanded to do when um, when they, when they were playing them. because I was as concerned about the effect by being balanced would improve their performance whilst they were playing head into something else becomes a fantastic blockading technique when your form's not good and you've got mm. an injury, etc. And equally as important, if not more, to make the transition from footballer to non-footballer significantly easy, as difficult as it is. Think about having your self, your identity, your who you are, when you when it, you can kick and catch a footy, and no longer you can kick and catch a footy. Your identity is absolutely shafted. So if you haven't adopted and are ready to do something else, it's going to be difficult to make the transition. Even if you are ready and wanting to, you've had enough Mm. and you want to go and do something else, it's extremely difficult, as I've found out, and we're having the conversations now and the research is being done, it's extremely difficult to actually make that transition effectively. And it can be so brutally sudden too, can't it? You know, an injury, uh, um, a termination. it's it's a fascinating topic, and you know I think that it, it, it need not mirror what a lot of people have in their careers because most people can uh, choose to do something or find a second job before they need to. Um, the, the concept, though, that I'd like to talk about, you know, around that sort of uh, what you talked about or, or your NFE, the non-football experience, was it engagement? Engagement. So for me, uh, with my CEO hat on, what I found was most powerful in um, helping businesses achieve or helping teams of people achieve something special in a turnaround sense was to detach the objective that the team stood for in in a business sense of profit or of paying the private school fees for the owner or whatever and start to connect the group of people to something much bigger than themselves. Now, I guess when you're playing AFL football, the, the, the lure of a premiership is much bigger than than anyone um, but I'm interested though did you find that that NFE component started to become the bigger thing that, that the person stood for no I don't think it ever ever became the bigger thing although in a case one I, one I can think of comes off my head is um, Andrew Mac- Andrew um, McKay who um, came in missed a training session I can still see him in his blue overalls complaining bitterly that he's driven back from Bendigo where he was wool-classing, that I had this expectation he had to work. The work he was doing was mm. bloody hard and at, uh, you know physically hard and it was long and uh, it prevented him from doing what he wanted to do was come and tra- train and prepare for footy. And I had the, had the conversation with him. What, well, Andrew, what are you going to do when you're finished? You know, we figured out another part. When are you finished? He said, um, oh, I'll probably go back to the old man's farm and work out. And I said, oh, is that what you really – Want to do? He said, nah, I want to be a vet. I went, oh, could be pretty bright, Andrew, to be a vet, you know. He said, no, oh, it's pretty smart school. So he bought his um, reference, his school reference in from the or his report form. In from the, and he was getting hundreds for subjects I couldn't even spell. And I said, oh, you, you, well, you're, a very, you're a very smart bloke. And uh, we, so we got him a place at Melbourne University in, wow. um, in science. He did well, but not well enough to get into vet science in the second year. But he did well enough to get into either Brisbane or Perth. Now I'm done. I've encouraged him to go down this road. If he goes to Brisbane or Perth, we're probably going to lose him as a player. Brisbane's two hours away. Mm. Perth's three or four hours away. So we got him a place in veterinary science in Brisbane. And basically for a year, we played seven games badly. I nearly lost my job because one of our better players was being 
encouraged to go elsewhere and break his contract in a sense. Mm. But he did so well in vet in that year that he got back into veterinary science in Melbourne and completed that degree. To my what horrification, the, Stuart, to my horrification, he went, he's now the football manager of the Carlton Football Club, he <laughs> owns the veterinary surgery just down the road Does here he at Hawthorne really and now he's gone out and I made the phone call and he, says, he saw, saw who it was, said, Coach, I'm not looking forward to this conversation <laughs> and he got he copped it in the ear from me. Um, do you find that your influence in that way is, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's very rewarding for you to be talking about it now. Um, is it also something that built trust with the other players, the fact that you were prepared to connect a senior good player to something that they loved interstate and therefore risk them leaving? Would that, would that- a very, No, it's a very good question. I've never asked it and I don't know the answer. They probably, because they're so intrinsically selfish about what to achieve, so competitive that I was actually... Destabilising the team. Destabilising the team and making it more difficult for them to achieve what they wanted selfishly for themselves via the team. So I never had that conversation. It's an extremely good question. We could probably Mm. find the answer out out for, but I think it probably worked in reverse. Because, I mean, I know, you know, for me that um, my, my... uh, it's different being a, a CEO in a in a business because you don't have that that uh, premiership cup that that the whole team needs everyone to work towards and you build up towards. Um, so for me, my starting point was always that um, if I could align, if I if I can know what your personal goals are and I can align um, our goals to your goals for a period, then um, let's do that because I want you motivated moving towards what you love, what you want to achieve in life, um, you know, your NFE if you like. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the people that left the, the businesses that I worked with would do so to start their own businesses because I was an unashamed encourager of entrepreneurial activity, um, but we, which means we'd, leave, we'd lose good people, you know. But, but for me, I always took comfort that, um, that they were leaving to go to something they loved and all the uh, the rest of the team knew that, that I was encouraging that, and that was okay as well. But hence, I, I asked like the that question mm. because it's a really mm. you know in an AFL in a in a sporting team sense, you know. Yeah, well, it's opportunity. I hadn't thought it until you asked the question, which is interesting in itself. But this is the difficult thing with teams, and I've been doing a lot of work in the last couple of weeks in trying to help people work mm. what I call with and for each other. And the difficulty is that most teams don't have the capacity for the end result, that is the outcome produced by the team, to impact specifically on the individual within it. So the outcome of the team, unless there's some way of me selfishly gaining from that, that's why we Mm. could get Greg Williams at the end of his career to change his method of play because the only thing he didn't have around his neck was a premiership medal. Mm. Done everything else, but he realised by just modifying his approach, doing it differently, that what he selfishly wanted via the team, Mm. he could gain. Yep. Now, if I couldn't convince him that, nothing would have changed. Well, you've got to align in some way, don't you? You know, And I guess everyone's got an agenda too. That's, that's right. And, and yeah. we need to understand that. That's why I had the conversation and we don't have it. People don't sit, team leaders don't sit down with the team. They impose on them what they think is required to get the job done to achieve what he, as the team leader, needs with some you know, boss or something. Which is actually it. not, you know, for my, so my definition of leadership is probably different to that. You know, we, when we use that term leader, I know what you mean is, is, is it's a senior person in the team, but really a leader is someone that for me that people choose to follow um, because they're doing things that, you know, are, are acting in a um, the, the collective best interest perhaps. Talk about culture. You know, so, you, you know, you've got a situation where people are running around asking each other questions about what they do, why they do it. Um, what, how did that? How did that manifest in terms of stickiness and bringing them together, or did it well, did it unearth things that perhaps uh, weren't weren't uh, greatly supportive? <laughs> no, I think yeah, what's cult- cultures. I mean, the finish is it's the sum total of values which lead to certain behaviours that people mm. have. That's what we always talk about. Well, get, let, let's get some good people. Yeah. Some good people into this organisation. That's yeah, not a well, bad starting yeah. point. People who do bring, who are good people, who, have good who basically do the right thing, which is yeah. what good people are about. They're very hard to find mm. because the right thing necessarily is not what I want. The right thing is what is collectively best for us all. Mm. So we've got to, and this is the discussion out in Curran Cove last Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday with a whole lot of people who work in a clothing company, work, we're called Workwear World. 
And uh, it was fascinating for them to, to say why they were here, what they needed from their teams, what they, and they collectively sat down and agreed to four things, which they would all do. Help me when I'm in trouble. You know, sacrifice a bit. You do your job, but you know, have a look over here. When I need some help, come over here and do something. I was fascinated by what made a good team, a collective for them. And it's different there than it is in a football club, than it is in a manufacturing yeah. some, somewhere else. So I don't think unless we have the conversations, and we're not good at engagement. Australians are not good. We, you know, asking questions, good questions is a great starting point. Get good at asking people questions, the right questions, and then actually stop, listen and hear the answer and then respond in such a way that the people who know that you asked the question to, though you, you've heard and you're going to do something about it. I've got a great leader at Deakin University now, Jane Den Hollander, a South African via Perth. She is brilliant at – she's engaged with both the academic staff and the support staff of 22,000 people like nobody else has because she's good at that, asks great questions, listens and hears the answers and then does things which are a direct response of the questions he asked those people and the answers he got. Very few people I know, Stuart, do that. But is that the way that you um, would create the code of conduct or, or how would you distill down to get those four or five things that the team stands for, you know, that they can concentrate on or focus on? By having, by having this open and honest conversation, have that as a starting point. We're all selfish. Work on the assumption that we're all selfish. We're all here to get our intrinsic needs fulfilled. What are our intrinsic needs? How can we collectively help all of us here fulfil the things that we want? Very, very hard to do to get the common ground amongst all people in all the situations. That's why teams, great teams, are few and far between. And those that stay and succeed over time are minimal. Mm. Because the, the, the collective I mean, view and then the agreement to it is so hard to gain and so hard to maintain. I, I find that in, in all situations. I've been, in a, I've been part of teams and politics and religion and education <laughs> and manufacturing and you, you name it. I've been there, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. I see them working and trying to establish a culture of team and then trying to maintain it. Very, very this, hard. This to do is still. for me. This is the fascinating component of leadership. You know, it's, it's about the people. It's about you know. It's the beautiful part. It's the challenging part. It's the reason I've got hardly any hair left on my head. <laughs> but, but it's the joy, Stuart. I can see it, it on is, your face. It is, it's yeah. the when you establish it, mm. and it achieves the things that we collectively have had the vision to do. Not my vision for them, but our vision for us. And it actually happens. It's the most fulfilling thing. And that's why sports. So you know, make the point. It sports. Is, yeah. So. Not so much good at it, but when you are a part of something that sees why I've got these five premierships that I've been a part of, playing and coaching, who have stuck together and look after and support each other now years and years down the track on the basis of what we did 100 years ago. You know, it's, it's, it's because we know it's unique mm. and, and we're, <clears throat> we're so pleased at the time and, and still are historically for what happened. So... People talk about it, people work at it consistently, but the number who actually succeed in all walks of life is few, in my opinion. So a question around that, I mean, you know, so for me, I guess uh, what I try to work with, with businesses is that the, the, the journey of success as a team is more about um, who we are than what we do, right? So which I'm thinking, you know, in your case is the reason that uh, decades after premierships, those people come together because of the, of the connection they had through their behaviour at the time, not so much the um, the fact that they won an AFL premiership. Absolutely. You've got it. That's as well as I've heard anybody actually describe. It's exactly for who we were together rather than actually the significant moment of achieving. All that did so, was so reinforce Are there other teams that have that connection that didn't win a flag that – that rare. Uh, that's hard to say, except I coached at Fitzroy and it was interesting. They were a fantastic bunch of blokes who played as close to their potential individually and collectively of anybody I've ever coached but didn't win. Mm. But when Paul Ruse, the very person you mentioned, won at Sydney a few years later, the word got around, it wasn't even an official invitation, the word got around that they were meeting at a pub in South Melbourne. And I, the word passed by me. So I, and I was only there for you know two or three years and worked with Paul, but there was an attraction to go, mm. and I went there. Hundreds 
and hundreds of Fitzroy people (laughs) turned up on this this word of mouth. I reckon, Paul, if you ask him, it was one of the magic moments. They were reflecting with him on what he achieved as one of them where they'd never had the opportunity, but there was some reflected glory because of the association they had with this (laughs) man and they collectively had at Fitzroy without actually achieving. So to say that the final world, if you like, in this collective group is usually something special they've done together. And that usually means going the full way, winning a premiership or doing or, or collectively reaching the target they were supposed to achieve or whatever the um, the vision is. It's I a think. fascinating topic. Though, oh, I mean, it is. It is. You think yeah. about how could you, um, you know, I, I, I guess for me I think of it in terms of help people create an era of their, in their life as a group that for the rest of their lives they'll look back upon with, with fondness, um, that there's such a connection between the people in their, in their group that, they, that they've achieved something special. Um, you know, you see it, you talk about it now, I can see visibly that it was a, a wonderful period for you and that, and that, that was not including an AFL premiership. Um, gee, imagine if we could do that and help businesses to create that, help, as you said, church groups, um, not-for-profits, all these other organisations within the society that we live in to have that type of dynamic. Well, they might argue, Stuart, that they do. I mean, I haven't been close enough to, to close enough to enough of those sorts of organisations who, who probably have those connections and satisfactions in a way that yeah. I don't understand or the way yeah. that I haven't been close enough to. And, and, and I haven't really, you know, I've worked in a lot of business for a short period of time. I had a couple of years at Dunlop Rubber when I started, but I'd never got to the point where I was connected to that organisation. I was working on a cadetship in every, that meant every three months I went into some other department doing some other work. Mm. I left and went teaching on the dissatisfaction that my role at Dunlop had provided for me. I knew that there was, there had to be something bigger and better and more meaningful to me. Well, so I, I walked. I completely understand that. That yeah. really gets to the guts of what I made my decision to step away from being a CEO, to be honest. Is it similar? It, it is, yeah. Um, and, you know, to be able to teach, I mean, for me, the, um, a leader is a teacher. Yep. Uh, Agreed. And, and, uh, and a salesperson. Um, Agreed again. And, uh, you know, you're in there doing that. And, and I guess I felt that I could, if I could reach more people than I could in, within one organization, that would be a, a good starting point. Agreed. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I, I, you, you asked the question about not having, or raised the, the topic of not having visibility in, in those organizations. My perspective has been that, um, unfortunately, there's been a culture of focusing on, on management, um, of doing things, of cutting costs, being more efficient which uh, is sort of counterproductive to the goals of leadership of actually expanding people because if we're trying to cut costs, then we don't choose to invest in people. We, we don't choose to have the, the, give them the space to have the conversations because what we're looking at is, well, we've got excess capacity here, let's cut that. Um, but actually without space, people don't have the conversations, they don't have the dialogue, they don't ask the questions, they don't have the connections um, and often, you know, it, it leads to, to resentment um, arising in organisations, which, you know, is exactly the opposite of, of creating a team that can achieve something special. Well, it's, it's interesting, particularly on what, you know, you and I would call the development of people. And mm. um, it's funny that the work I did two weekends ago in Tasmania for, for Subway, it's the first time in 17 years they've done any kind of development, understanding of the people and so the first time. What, on, and it's usually the other way around. When you start to lose money and things aren't happening, you cut what is your professional yeah, and personal. Discretionary spend. Spend you know, it's yeah. gone. So yeah. the, all, all the stuff that we want to do in helping develop our people goes out the door. Well, this is the first time in 17 years <laughs> that the, the owner of these 15 outlets, mm. subway outlets, first time 15 years on the back and they didn't make any money. For the last 12 But at months. least he's doing it with a good reason now. You know, he, He's actually not saying, let's cut further. He's saying, right, we need to spend do a bit. something different. Yeah, exactly. do something different and spend a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he, for instance, not one of the 28 young people I talk with on the Sunday afternoon had ever met the owner of the business. Gee whiz. Never, never met yeah. him, not one of them. Yeah, yeah, you used to invest time with your um, teams and each person every six months. 
He'd not met any of them. And so I actually broke him down. He's a pretty tough businessman. I broke him down. <laughs> and I said, I can't believe that here, here are these people. They don't even know the owner. They know the managers mm. and they know the team leaders and they even know the, the pod leader, but they've never met you. Isn't it, isn't it time that they saw who you are and uh, what you've invested in and your history, even in your induction here. They don't have it, don't get enough find out, they don't get any induction about the business, how it developed, who buy, and you're it. You work on the business and never in it. Suggest you turn up every Friday in one of your businesses and make sandwiches for a while, be a good thing. And that's what he's going to do. Is that right? Yeah. So talk about that. So, I mean, I think uh, I love that concept of um, of transparency and uh, and humanity and compassion. I guess um, in leaders where they can concede their mistakes and um, and be the person who's real. Um, now, you know, as an outsider looking at say a sport like AFL, you see this sort of historically, um, in the, particularly when I was a kid, you know, in the seventies and eighties, it was a man's man's game. Um, was there space for that? Or did you did you have to just be the tough guy and uh, be good, autocratic? That's that's a good point, and I and I was because that's what I'd been subjected to. I was an autocratic, dictatorial prick, but, and you can get away with it in that business because you've got for every dead body, you've got 150 lined up, willing to jump over the top of it mm. um, because that's the nature of the game. So therefore, that leadership was reinforced. Has that changed? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, talk to Paul Ruse, I sense it has. I mean, no, no, it's cha- changed, it's changed so much for the better. And I think we're now, we, uh, Paul Burke has been my great lifelong friend who's been my business partner forever, who I sacked without giving him a league game. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been, it's been fantastic in, in sensing what business gave, has given to sport. When it became professional for the first time in about 1990, professional meant to be yeah. full-time employees yeah. and all that sort of thing. But and Paul and I walked that pathway while they took in our case AFL footy, screaming and kicking into some sort of professional mm. um, culture. Uh, but at the same time, in this last 15 years, where it's been a revolution in football, a slow evolution over 100 years, but now this this last 15 or 20, we've had an absolute revolution in every element of the game. So now what professional sport is doing, there's a fair bit of it now going back the other way and saying how much better businesses can do it because of the things which we do, particularly, you know, 360 feedback, the ability yeah. to have these open, oh. honest conversations. I was going to raise that. I mean, Daniel uh, Jackson talked about that, that yeah. he had to sit in front of the player group of 42 people with all the coaches and you had to say um, – you know, that, that sort of conversation of what I do, what I stand for, and, and make commitments in front of everyone. Tough that would be incredibly confronting uh, as a forum. And a lot of people can't. Well, you know, Jason Ackermanis showed how he couldn't do it when he was at the Western Bulldogs because yeah. some young bloke was suggesting to him that maybe he could do something a bit better. Oh, <laughs> sheepish, you know? And I went to a review session at Hawthorne two years ago where, you know, an 18-year-old played six games, was comfortable when they were discussing a game which they won by 77 points, discussing what did we do well that we need to do, what do we do better that we're okay at, what do yeah. we need to start doing we're not good at and what do we need to stop doing, which we're mucking up on. And an 18-year-old being able to have a conversation, open and honest, which was critical in some elements to a 31-year-old who played 250 games, mm. I thought, what a wonderful environment mm. Alistair Clarkson has developed there. But that said, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Peter Singer, you know, that uh, fifth discipline, and he talks about the concept of, uh, of dialogue versus discussion. Um, and I think it comes from a, some uh, nuclear physicist originally, Doesn't this it? concept. But no, I read dialogue it. is where you can actually, um, we can have a, a conversation um, and I will hold up my, I'll, I'll, be, I'll acknowledge my biases and my assumptions and you'll do the same. And we're both big enough to challenge them without hierarchy. You know, so it's a safe environment. Safe environment versus discussion, where I've got an opinion, you've got an opinion, and we're gonna, one of us is gonna win. You know, in the end, Who, who's best at exactly you know. communicating? And, the and if you've got hierarchy, you know, then then, <laughs> then you un- can you can just require that. You know, well, it's you can win despite luck, the fact you don't have a good argument. Yeah, nice try, mate. But <laughs> you know, that's uh, yeah. I'm fascinated by that. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated with just having come off. These are fairly basic people working in a in a workwear company. Uh, in four teams of six who are trying hard to come up with, what's the word, um, um, accepted behaviour 
across the group that they could all sign off and agree to. And just a simple thing like that, how difficult it is to get something which is common to us all that mm. we will work at in a sincere and committed way and the outcomes will be good for us all. Very difficult. And being do. responsible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Embry says it's Self-responsibility. Self-responsibility, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, but I'm fascinated by that and, and we work at it and we're getting better at it. There's no doubt, but it's, no, it's not the science everybody thinks it is. It's, it's, a, it's a real art form to do it. And that's why I have great difficulty where Deacon, where I teach, has gone down the pathway of our vision is to educate and qualify anybody in the discipline they choose at the time they either choose it anywhere in the world. And the only way you can do that is online. Mm. And it takes away a fundamental yep. element of the engagement that doesn't happen. So I get to, I was doing some work last week for Airbiz and the, and the um, what's he called, the HR manager of South Africa again. <laughs> who'd done a five-year degree at Deakin in HR and had never been on the campus once in five years. Well, you can probably tell by my face what I think of that. But, uh, well, it's just uh, it's sad. And she, she I should be saying this to the public, since she probably made the – in terms of the workshop that we were doing with mm. six team leaders from six different countries, she probably contributed least. Yeah. Well, dialogue versus discussion, I guess. It's interesting, though, that, you know, I think for me that I think that to some degree, and I'm not saying that the, the internet will never enable um, the richness of face-to-face education, you know, that I see happens through face-to-face education. So you're saying it will, so I, in I'm not time, saying it will it, never. No, that's, it'll be capable. It, no, it does it, now. Not, uh, but it, it, you're, you're right. I'm of an age where I have awful trouble coming to this because I want to see body language. Yeah. But in the fish, we'll be able yeah. to do that. You're right. Yeah. The internet will provide But even more. so, I mean, you know, I, I think for me that I, I think that we're robbing um, the students a little because we're, we're allowing them to make a choice that's convenient. Um, so they choose, but sometimes I think you have to say, well, you know what, if you've gone through this journey and you do know what's better for the student, then shouldn't you make that the way it's done you know and i think i think i've articulated that terribly but um, no, no, maybe it's controversial no, but you've articulated correctly it, that's my that's, yeah. but i have a similar view to the world obviously <laughs> that you do but uh, you know and it's it, it's interesting we we have not melbourne university and, and monash at this stage two of the good universities here would would probably argue our case better mm. uh we have we have in our our education outlet <clears throat> decided we can't match them do it as well as them, but we can do it better in this through this lens than anybody else can do it, and we do it. We win the award every year, so we've yeah. took, taken the march there because it is financially or well, business-wise. You know, and, business and the institution's argument is, well, people are voting with their feet. They're enrolling online. Yeah, but actually, if we know what education, what richness, how it's facilitated, then ought not we deliver it that way? Well, that, that's the fact. So. You know, I say I learned a lot of my, um, I guess, leadership um, competencies, etc., mm. by university life, the life beyond going yes, and studying, absolutely. the actual being there and being yep. a part of these yep. associations and yep. things that helped me enormously yeah. in the pathway that I trod. The distractions, the 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 leadership opportunities, all that sort of stuff. Agreed. I agree with that. And in, at the end of the day, I think for me, um, employing people um, who've come through a campus education in particular, you know that they've immersed themselves in something they've had to fund life you know have jobs balance things have competing priorities survive they can get things done um it doesn't really matter what they what they have learned you know typically most people i've ever, ever worked with as graduates so i've found that um i take the view they know nothing and it's going to be 12 months investment from us before they're that useful um anyway you know but, but you would have think the fact that you talked about the the on-campus pathway and all the other mm. elements and impact on them, you'd be happier about that than maybe the particular degree and the information which has been plugged into them. Oh, the absolutely. Time. You know, mm. but look, to be honest, I was no uh, a great student. Um, I was fascinated by life, and uh, I got uh, my start post university because I had run a business. I had um, been the president of a sporting club in at the university, and you know, and done all these things. You know. Not because I was uh, academically uh, outstanding, that's for sure. And and, and I, I just <laughs> you just painted my picture, and but that that is the portrait. <clears throat> that is the portrait of eighty percent of the people that come mm. through 
university life in that way. The 20% at the top who are genius and go through despite all, etc. They will learn all there is to know about nothing, become experts and siloed in their field and don't make the impacts, in my humble opinion. Mm. I'm not offending people here, but you know, don't, don't make the impact that no. they could if they were broader-based generalist. Yeah. The and, and, and right now, I mean, you, you know, you have this situation where people, it's becoming so bloody competitive for these kids that they feel the need to focus solely on their studies to get grades, to get into good organisations when they finish. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, so, it, it is really difficult mm. because I've got, we've got the sport, we run the best sports science course at Deakin of all. And um, the, the, the need then for them to go and do postgraduate work in a specialisation which is going to provide them work is difficult. We've got, we've got 13 universities... 13 universities in Australia, in Australia yeah. who are producing sports scientists, graduate sports scientists. Mm. And there's not, they all go into a professional sport and that sort of thing. And the only way now is to do graduate work in, a, in, in you know, GPS tracking or, or analysis of some form. They do that. Got to make them a specialist in an area where they can actually grab a job. Can't get work. There's no work. You know, they go out and all become fitness advisors or personal trainers and all mm. that sort of stuff, and it's ludicrous. And they all come to me and say, well, am I gonna, I want to get a job to hold on for a book club. I said, oh, okay, good luck, line up. Mm. Um, do something that nobody Have else a, has done. Put a business case up. Yeah. It's really tough. Yeah, it's, it? look, it's, it's fascinating. You know, I uh, have had the pleasure of working with a couple of Melbourne Victory players on yep. looking at their life after football. Yes, good. Um, and they're still playing. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a topic that, that led to Careers Unplugged being um, run for, as a live event, as we talked about earlier, for the players because they said, you know what, this is something that all of our whole playing list needs to think about. Um, but not enough people are doing it. But what I wonder is, you know, that because of the disciplines and the success that, um, that sporting clubs have in um, creating culture, in cl- creating cultures of accountability, of asking questions that are so brutally honest, um, you know, that it's, it, it blows most people away, I wonder if there's not more opportunities to sort of build those links with business, to maybe train people in, in uh, or elite athletes in facilitation, so they can go into into businesses uh, when they retire or even when they're still playing, to start well, to be involved. Well, in that no idea. Well, no, I just happen to know Ian Robson's happened to yep, one, yep. one of my closest mates, on, yeah. um, and. Some organisations, the Hawthorne Football Club, where he came from as well, mm. are, are doing a, a, have an obligation to do that. That's why, that's why they create. This is the place where players want to play. Mm. This is the what is it? You call it a, um, a, an employer of choice. Whether you're yeah, a player yeah, or a yeah, staff member yeah. or whatever you are, you go to that place because they actually <clears> look after you during and beyond your capacity to play the game, if you like. Some some people don't. There's been fantastic piece of. Research wouldn't get through the ethics department of any university, but the Players Association got every player in the AFL at the end of the 2013 season to evaluate their club. It's a brilliant piece of research. To evaluate their club, ability to develop me, I'm here to be a footballer, so their ability to develop me as a footballer, but the ability to develop me as a non-player in terms of my, my, your NFE. My, my, yes, not for engagement, <clears> but my few, the very thing you're talking about and you're doing in, mm. in looking, forcing people to look now for their future. How well they do that? Through the coach, the welfare manager, the football manager, and the high performance manager. They were the four lenses they had to use, those four people's ability to develop them as a player and as a person. Fascinating. That is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So every club got back where they were rated by their players in comparison to every other club in the competition. Did that cause some havoc, some thinking, massive change, a re-evaluation of who they should have in terms of the people <coughs> developing their players? What a fascinating, uh, what a fascinating topic. Brilliant. I wonder, I wonder how that could be um, taken out into the world. I mean, that's, that would involve companies sharing information, which they may or may not want to do. I and I guess you do have employee choice do it. sort of concept. They don't want to do it either. The Players no, Association did yeah. it without a plan. And, they, and, they, and the clubs were very annoyed because whilst it wasn't published yeah. in the broader sense, it was given to every club and it caused havoc because the, fir- the, number, the first three, the top of the ladder, unbelievable. Hawthorne, well, in this order, Geelong, mm. Hawthorne and Sydney. Yeah, no surprises, huh? No surprise, except the one, the, the outlier, 
saying this, but outlier was Western Bulldogs, who unfortunately sucked their coach and half their staff a year later. So something went okay. badly wrong in the well, 2014 season. There's no there, <laughs> no, so anyway, yeah, yeah, that was the outlier. <laughs> but some of the great sporting clubs who have had reasonable success in the last decade or two at the moment aren't performing and their players have told them that. <laughs> David, I'm mindful of your time. You've got uh, other commitments today. Is there a, a challenge that you'd want to send out to the audience of, of this show that, in terms of what they do in their life, in their leadership? In uh, their- well, the, the, the leadership might, might not be so much a challenge. We were lucky enough, Paul and I, to interview the uh, 13 great Australian leaders, male and female, of the time about 10 or 12 years ago. And we spoke to these people. What did they bring personally? What did they bring professionally in terms of the competences had that other people had designated that they were great Australian leaders? And I had a privilege of talking to these people for one and two and three hours. It was oh, marvellous. Wow. And then we asked them, could we have a focus group from your organisation <laughs> to talk about really? you to and to validate what you're doing? Their own lemonade. Best things that, yeah, <laughs> one of the best things that we've ever done. And what came out of that, two of them, mind you, Stuart mm. wouldn't give us wouldn't the focus, so okay. we didn't put them in the book. Yep, fair enough. Um, but the ones who did, and, and it was a, this is 10 or 15 years ago, it was a, the best learning experience for me that I reckon I've ever had in my life, one of, one of them, the top five I've had in my life. These people talked about their leaders in, in the sense of their passion. We called it professional will because we didn't know what else. Uh, we called it professional will in the book, but it was their passion and commitment to getting the job done. The great leaders, I'm absolutely convinced now, there's never any doubt about the outcome they have. You can smell, taste, sense, feel that getting the job done is number one thing. Yep. No excuse for that. Yep. But number two, and it's almost incongruous, number two, all these people spoke about the leader caring about them as a person beyond their capacity for the what they've been employed to do. So there was this holistic view by this great leader who was passionate about getting the job done, but he hadn't forgot who's doing it and he's interested in you. And that came out even in the subway thing I had a fortnight ago with these young kids. Mm. Be interested in me. Talk to me about the things I'm doing other than my work. Engage with me about things that I'm, you know, the things that are important to me outside, and have that conversation. That that was number one. That came out that way, and I would have agreed. These kids were saying that, and I didn't think this generation would follow. But that would be the greatest advice. You know, we're all passionate, and, and most of us are leading, are leading because we've got a commitment to getting something done. That, that's no problem. That's why we're here. But don't forget to care about, mm. work with. But you know exactly. what, I and mean, there's another guy that we had in the show recently who you may know who was a former CEO at Hawthorne as well. His name was Michael Brown. Uh, Michael and, very well. And Mick, um, he shared the other side of that conversation um, where, you know, he's currently the chief executive of the uh, Asian Cup football tournament and um, he's travelling so often that recently he had the chance to get back into the office and he's had to shift to Sydney to, uh, to, to do this, fill this role. And he, he managed to share a lift with one of his younger staff at a point on a day. And she just said to him, gee, Mick, it's great to have you back in the office um, to see you, you know. And, and he said, this is, this is the best. He said, that is the reason I love being a CEO. You know, it's because of those connections with people who, are, who I don't work with each day at work, but they're in the team. And uh, it's a special, you know, motive, I guess, motivator. I'm with Michael, yeah. I'm with Michael. I think that's exactly right. But it's hard because in, in, in getting the job done, we sometimes trample the people. We're so, yeah. our, our passion, to, to, we don't take our eye off no. the end product. And you have to hold them accountable too. I mean, oh, you know, yeah, you can, absolutely. All they, yeah. this, this is a topic that we probably don't have time to get into right now and I'd love to. But um, Look, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, mm. for uh, making yourself available to have this conversation and to, uh, to appear on Careers Unplugged. It's very much appreciated. So well, thank you. Stuart, thank, thank, I, it's a joy to be here and, and, and understand the work you're doing because fundamentally right at this time I think in our evolution, yeah. our in business and sporting evolution, we've just got to have those conversations. I came out of a terrific symposium in the QAS last mm. Saturday which was all about the health in the broader sense of the athlete. And I was fascinated by the 11 or 12 specialists they've from all sorts of areas who are coming in to talk about the implications of the end effect on the athlete. Now, while they're performing 
and certainly what you and I have talked about when they mm. transition out to a non-athlete later on. It's it's, it's a, a holistic view. Oh, it's, and it's I mean, a we massive. Had, we were we had the the privilege of um, of running a careers unplugged session at um, an event called the Wellness Summit, which was held at Crown um, back in August. So six hundred people. And why are we there was because everyone else was talking about uh, exercise, movement, you know, diet. And, and we sort of said, well, you know what? I mean, you can exercise famously well. You can eat the best. Even you could jump on the paleo bandwagon like Melbourne. Um, but if, you, if, you, if you're immersing yourself in a toxic environment every day in where you work, you're still going to put yourself in a box uh, at an, an age before you should. Um, and not achieve the things along the way that you are capable. Exactly, of and I and I th- and I sense you know that that's sort of part of your mission as a as a leader as well when you're a coach and in the, the way that you influence groups now is to sort of you know the challenge I like to leave groups is to make the place uh, a place your staff love to be you know encourage that era of greatness that they you know whether or not they win the AFL premiership or not or not no. you know they'll still come to the pub mm. um, a decade later or two yeah. decades later yeah and, that, and that's the difficulty isn't it if we don't quite get there as seen, you know, but, you know, coming, this is the, the coming second is mm. unforgivable, which is just a ludicrous concept to have. We can't all win, but we can no, be the best right. we can be at the time. And what is winning, you know? What is winning, day, yeah, absolutely, so. yeah. It's fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see what, what the, uh, the way the public regard that topic over the next 10 or 20 years, you know. I think winning is still uh, ingrained in the psyche, but more people seem to be taking a different perspective on it now, on participation. Well, an anthropologist wrote the other day about finding in New Guinea after the Second World War two tribes in New Guinea with an Australian football. And the aim of the game was to make sure that we finished even. Really? That's fascinating. I'd love to find that, actually. Anyway, um, to all of you at home, in the car, or wherever you are, thanks for joining us. We hope the insights provided by David help you in your journey. Make a point of visiting careersunplugged.com or Facebook forward slash careersunplugged. Leave a comment and get access to a whole bunch of resources designed specifically to help you in your journey. This has been Careers Unplugged with Stuart Hayes. Would you benefit from a business coach or mentor who's the real deal? Or from a training program customized to fix real problems or help you and your team hit actual KPIs and performance targets? Stuart Hayes stepped away from his career as a global change CEO and committed to mentoring, coaching and training a new generation of leaders as well as anyone seeking positive impact through their business or career. Visit StuartHayesLeadership.com now. Book a free one-hour strategy session with Stuart and learn how you can get the skills, training and knowledge normally limited to selected staff within Tier 1 multinational organizations. Programs are available for every need and budget.